Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, and thanks for putting this together. Um, it's a great opportunity to talk about some things that are near and dear to my heart that are difficult to talk with people about sometimes because they're so complex and so embedded in um, our professions, for instance. So when Anne-Marie invited me, I thought, what could I possibly bring that the SRHE audience would be interested in? So there are two things that I'm talking about today that are covered in the abstract that you might have read. Um, one of them is I want for you to be able to go home knowing something about some student development theories, some existing theories on how students develop and change over time. And then the other one is I want to share with you some of the research that we're doing at UCL that I'm doing with Inesh here um, about students' understandings of knowledge. So Anne-Marie asked me to tell you just a little bit more about myself. Um, I actually was a professor of architecture in the United States and I really desperately wanted to move over to Europe. I tried moving once as an architect to Switzerland, uh, you know, with mixed success. Um, and I wanted to make that leap again. It's not easy to do that as an architecture teacher. So I went and I got a research degree. I got a PhD in higher education at the College of William and Mary. And that helped me get a Fulbright Fellowship to Ireland, followed up by a Mary Curie Fellowship to Ireland and, surprisingly, a second Marie Curie Fellowship to come to UCL. So now I'm wrapping up my fellowship at UCL, um, and I'll go back actually to Dublin where I now have a permanent lecturing post, teaching, interestingly enough, um, undergraduate engineering and master's degree students in building information modeling. So I'm very interested in how students learn, but particularly I'm fascinated by the way we teach so contextually in architecture and how those same skills are needed in engineering, those same types of thinking, those same ways of knowing, and yet in engineering we so often frame it as um, identifying a problem and moving on from there. And not so much as of a pro process of always continually framing the problem, trying to answer it, reframing it, trying to answer it as we do in architecture. So I have a few learning objectives for today. Hopefully those will pan out by the end of our hour. And um, I do need to say that this work's been supported by a Mary Curie Fellowship um, and also by the UCL Center for Engineering Education, which has helped us bring in an expert to teach us a new research method that I want to share with you how to use um, and help support the, the logistical parts. Gift cards to the participants, transcription fees, um, so let's step back for a moment and talk about um, student development theories. Why we as educators should possibly want to know about how students are developing beyond our classroom or possibly in our classrooms. Well, the fact of the matter is that students ought to be learning a whole lot in the three to five years that they have us in their undergraduate degrees. In architecture, we have the students for five years so we can enjoy a lot of time watching them develop and helping them develop and getting to know them as individuals. Um, but I think it's the responsibility of instructors like us to help the students develop holistically and not just content knowledge of their discipline. Of course, doing this, the content knowledge should be, I think we're all in agreement on this part, um, the content knowledge, those should, that should be the, the vehicle through which they develop a lot of these other skills, or an important vehicle. Um, so I want to look at how university, how being in the university can help students develop these 
soft, professional, generic, transferable skills, which um, are everything from critical thinking, communication, and teamwork to leadership and dealing with uncertainty. That's a definition I threw in there for you this morning. Um, it's also about self-knowledge and values and ethical standards. So the values and ethical standards will come up in a lot of these student development theories, particularly the identity theories, but also some of the epistemological development theories. So um, in the United States, the people who know the most about this are the student affairs professionals, the people who make the activities and the counseling support and the special programs to support students who might have special needs, but the instructors, the people in the classrooms every day don't seem to know anything about these theories. And I see that as very problematic because the people who are the most engaged and visible on our university campuses are the people who are doing the outside activities. When the students have come to spend so much time in our classrooms, in our workshops. So I think that engineering educators need to know these theories and people who are teaching in other professions so that they can help students develop incrementally, they can help provide effective scaffolding for students to learn, and they can help provide the right balance of challenge and support so that they're not overwhelming the students or boring the students. So as far as student development theories go, I'd like to start with Kolb's theory. Now this one's highly controversial because we see flaws in some of Kolb's thinking. Are you all familiar with the learning styles? Okay, so Kolb has posited that um, there are preferred ways of thinking and that students might have a way of thinking that they feel most comfortable in and that we as educators want to help them learn other ways of thinking. The learning styles though, I think where his critical error was, has been is in trying to make a survey to quantify this, to, to, to figure out where people might lie in this model. And I want to show you later why I think that might be problematic. But Kolb also has a decision-making model that overlaps really well with the learning styles. So the learning styles are these in red. Uh, people who like to learn, for instance, the divergers like to learn through feeling and watching, for instance. Whereas converging, thinking and doing would be uh, more appropriate or more favored. In the decision-making cycle, though, it's suggested that you need to consider all these different ways of knowing something before you can make a really sound decision. So I think the model has good value. When we look at the realm of design, which is so important to engineering and architecture, people probably come into it with a very simple, simplistic idea about what we do. Sure, you just determine the requirements, you develop a solution, you implement or build the solution. And then at first year we're saying, but how will you know if it's a good solution? Oh, well, maybe, maybe we should, when we determine the requirements, we should determine some quality indicators. But still, they're thinking it's much of a linear process. And we're trying to break the students out of that idea towards thinking it's a more iterative process. So um, overlaying theories that I learned when I was in my PhD program, I realized that really to get the best achievement over time, we need to teach students to be using all of these ways of thinking very iteratively. So the spiral comes from Wilson. Uh, the pressure to change though, 
most people do need some kind of pressure, whether it's a conflict or a new assignment or something that moves them out of the realm they are now into another realm. Uh, in education, we can think of this maybe as a plus one theory, where you're trying to figure out where the student is developmentally and how to help them move to the next level of development on any of these models. So, um, now I want to focus in on this big question of, uh, that Anne-Marie invited me to talk about, which was epistemology. And that was the word that we connected on. So for me, epistemology is the study of how an individual conceptualizes knowledge, where they think it comes from, and how they think it originates, and kind of questions around this sphere. Students with sophisticated epistemic cognition are seen to consider multiple points of view, to make decisions in context, to recognize their own ability to create new solutions, and to generate new knowledge. Now, this bit of it is where I really got caught up. My, my PhD instructor for our cross-disciplinary perspectives course, which was different theories, different frameworks for thinking about things, well, she was an anthropologist. And she said, um, I, I raised a question that uh, in architecture school, we had been taught that we're not making brand new things. We are, in fact, recombining pieces that are already out there in the world in maybe in new ways, but we're not making anything that's new. All the pieces, all of our vocabulary, it's already been established. Um, now, she said, well, basically she said, then I'm backward because to, to be epistemically developed, you know, um, you have to believe that you can generate new knowledge. Those terms were all brand new to me, generating new knowledge, um, creating brand new solutions. I could see both sides of this coin. These are the questions I'm asking students about today. But the research shows that students who can restructure their thinking to consider multiple points of view, which I learned in architecture school, to make decisions in context, which, which I sure as heck learned. We do that from day one. Um, all of this we have to do from the very first day we walk into the architecture program. They get more out of their higher education and they're better prepared for careers than those who do not. Now, engineering educators start to get nervous here because when they try to test these topics, um, they realize that engineering students and most university students are not moving very far along these theories. Where we want them to move dramatically they'll only move a very small amount. So I'm going to show you uh, a depiction of William Perry's theory. Now, William Perry interviewed st students at Harvard and a few at Radcliffe. Two of them were women. The rest of them were elite white males, but this theory started there. So he spent about 10 years at the beginning collecting data at, um, at Harvard and assessing, analyzing it, figuring out what it might mean. And he uh, published this book in 1970, 1969, um, that is still being reprinted today. It's a very important book, seminal for the field. Now, it's this model that most of us refer back to, although many other models have come about since then. So over the years, people have been interviewing other people besides rich men. And what do you know? Um, 
Many of the aspects of the theory still hold true with other groups, but all these other scholars have brought new understandings that are very important. Um, so, for instance, Blinky, Klitschy, Goldberger, and Terule, who wrote Women's Ways of Knowing, um, interviewed mainly women. Um, and they noticed, actually, that even that there's an earlier stage even than dualism, which I'll talk about in a minute, but that silence, where you just don't feel any power to change things around you. So uh, you're almost in a cocoon and, and not able to, um, the locus of control is, is outside of you. Um, but we have many, many models that have come up, but there is something that's very common in all of these. And um, so, quickly stated, all of them have three main points. Dualism, where students think there's a right and a wrong. And an authority has the answers, and I can go to a book or the authority and they will tell me the right answer, and school is about learning the right answers and giving them back at the right time. In multiplicity, they start to realize, oh, there are multiple points of view. Um, maybe there's a process for figuring out which point of view is better than or not, and, and maybe these scholars suggest that women and men typically come to these in different ways, or there are different avenues that, that correlate somehow often to gender. Um, but in multiplicity, basically, we're not sure how you decide which point of view is better or worse, so all opinions are equal. And you'll hear this a lot, even among adults. Now, when you get up to relativism, um, which all of these are about relativism, not so much commitment. Now, um, Perry talks a lot about commitment and commitment to relativism, but um, those aspects of the theory, most of the followers aren't focused in on. They're both mostly looking at relativism and what that might mean. So, different words that they have for relativism that we might think are more accurate today are constructed knowing, contextual knowing, reflective thinking, evaluation, um, and then also I found Keegan's helpful, which is cross-categorical constructing or trans-system thinking, which are really critical features for engineers and architects to be able to do. But basically, all of these theories boil down to generative knowing. So this is a chart that's in Love and Guthrie's paper um, from 1999. But I'm really interested in this generative knowing and how students get there going through a process from unequivocal knowing, that dualism, right, wrong, to, oops, there are some grays. Any gray must be as good as any other gray. Radical subjectivism. Now, a critical piece of Perry's theory is this moment where a person really masters relativism. He calls it revolutionary restructuring, where they restructure their thinking. Now, Love and Guthrie, having read all of these other sources, call this the great accommodation. So in my own work, those are some of the sources, um, in my own work, um, I'll say I'm focusing right now on trying to understand how generative knowing is manifest in engineering and architecture students and how they make this great accommodation or if they've made it. That's a question that I can't really get to yet, how they make it or if they've made it, but I want to know what the role of generative knowing is in their thinking. 
What do they think they can generate? Now there's some really interesting tools if you're a design educator. I want to make sure you are aware of this one. I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but Chrisman and Adams have a great uh, rubric about how to teach design skills to all kinds of design students, including science students. Actually, Chrisman is a science education educator at NYU, or City College in Harlem. Um, so this is quite a detailed study, a paper really worthwhile. Um, but, um, all right, I hope that that didn't disappear. All right, uh, apparently one of my images isn't there, but what I'm going to tell you is that I took an earlier version of this that might show up on another slide. I made this presentation just for you all, so there will be some transitional glitches. But um, I noticed a lot of, of commonalities between the Chrisman, between Chrisman's earlier rubric, um, which he developed in the process. It's about his whole idea is about uh, novice to expert, the transition from novice to expert, except that students never get to the expert level. So he calls it uh, beginning designers and informed designers. So where we, the level of expertise we want our students to have when they leave our programs or develop in our programs, as opposed to the level of expertise that a, an architect with 50 years of experience would have which is, you know, why architecture is generally called an old man's profession, because, um, well, they've mostly been men in the past, and usually you don't develop a lot of prowess at it until you're older. So it takes quite a lot of contextual learning, contextual knowledge to become a really great architect. And now we do have some women who've broken through, like Zaha Hadid, but she's not with us any longer. Um, okay, so... It's that there's a similar threshold there, though, and that's where I really got excited because when I was a fourth year architecture student, sitting one night in my jewelry making studio with two of my friends from architectures from the architecture program, we were over in the art building talking about things, and I said that something happened between first year and second year where things just clicked into place. And when I came in at second year, I understood how to make decisions in context. Um, if that slide comes up later, it describes very well um, how I was then able to move between ideas, have confidence in the process that I was using, um, and what that would look like in architecture, in architecture school. Whereas in first year, I was making my decisions for my teacher. Does he like it? Does he like it? Is this right? Um, I could get fixated on ideas. I would adopt an idea too soon before I checked out other ideas. Um, I wouldn't do enough research and I'd jump right into trying to get it done, for instance. So I became interested in this theory, particularly because of this great accommodation, this revolutionary restructuring, which matched what I had seen called the click moment, or I called it the click moment, and why that popped out to me was that my friend Mira said she had experienced that too, but in the first semester. So I was jealous because I, I dragged myself through two semesters of pain and agony. And, and my other friend wasn't really sure what we were talking about. So maybe he hadn't quite gotten there yet. 
Okay. Um, so in this slide, I was just trying to show that there's also kind of a kind of this stage theory idea where a student in dualism would be approaching this as a simple linear kind of process. But over time, they learn maybe to expand their skills a little bit, maybe starting with making decisions the ways they're most comfortable with. And then hopefully over time, with the teacher's guidance and, 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 and support from the overall environment, be able to master all these different ways of thinking when they're answering questions and move closer to the center of this model. So this is part of the reason why I think that the survey that Kolb developed never yielded reliable responses, but it's so context-driven that if you're making a good decision, you're using all of these kind of ways of thinking. So um, that the responses to that survey are going to shift really based on what moment in time or what part of the decision that you're asking someone about. Okay. Yeah, when we uploaded this, we knew we lost something, but we didn't know what it was. So it's that, that early chart, um, which hopefully will show up when you, um, when you get the slides online. Um, so now you know there are two papers here. This conference paper for um, the American Society of Engineering Education will be published in a month, and then they'll be able to disseminate it electronically. But right now you can only have the hard copy. Um, but in that, we're explaining the project that we have underway which is to look at ways architecture and engineering students conceptualize design creation. So the architecture education looks much like this. This is students probably designing houses or schools. Um, and there's all kinds of knowledge involved with this, including describing things through models and explaining them through each other, through bodily knowledge even. Um, it's a very fluid kind of way of learning. And um, this is civil engineering. This is a photo representative of that, of that. The students have designed this bridge and now they're weight testing it to see if this little trolley can go across it and how, much, how heavy that trolley can be before it crashes the bridge. So this particular study is my first step in trying to understand and identify qualitatively different ways that students of the built environment, so architecture and civil engineering students, experience and understand the phenomenon of creating something entirely new. That should be phenomenon. <laughs> creating something entirely new. Although there are really two phenomena we'll be asking about. So in our sample for this study, we're looking for maximum variation that we can get. First, I just wanted to ask fourth year students, but um, we weren't sure we would get enough variation. So my sample group, and it's, I've lost the bottom of this chart as well. There are 26 students involved. Um, I've interviewed all of them and had the, the interviews professionally transcribed. Um, there are 16 from Dublin, uh, seven, six or seven from London, and seven from Virginia. And these are all institutions that I, that I have connections with. So we're looking for variation in responses here because we're doing a phenomenographic study. So we tried to get multiple years. We have a multinational approach. It's snowball sampling and convenient sampling to some effect because um, we are inviting any which way we can to get enough students around the times of years that they're willing to talk with us. Um, and we went to three different countries. 
So we want to understand how students interpret creating. And we want to use our understanding to improve the way that we teach. So novel aspects of this particular project include that it spans multiple professions, um, that we're asking them about their concepts of generating design and knowledge, and that we'll be able to compare and see if there are differences between degree programs or year levels, which I don't think we'll find. Um, actually, we may find that there's more variation in the second year responses. Uh, right now, we have, I think, 10 of the interviews are with second year students and 16 are with fourth year students. So, a big part of this is also um, upskilling our own group at the Center for Engineering Education at UCL in phenomenography. So our research team, um, and a good reason to go to these seminars and the SRHE meeting in December are to make connections with people who can teach you things. So I wanted to learn about phenomenography. Why? First I thought I was signing up for a session on phenomenology. Wendy Nash mentioned it to me. But no, it was phenomenography. It was right here in this room, and that was taught by Mike Memorenis. He's with East Anglia University here outside of London. Um, and so I realized, wow, I've been reading a lot about phenomena phenomenography. Actually, I, I was well aware of it. But what was missing in so many of the dissertations and studies that I read about phenomenography was actually a process for how to do it. So you were... I know I've seen you at other sessions, maybe you were in that one, but Mike really broke this down in a reasonable way that we could learn how to actually do a phenomenographic study. So I was using phenomenology, which is to understand people's, how people experience different phenomena, but I hadn't used phenomenography because I saw it as an extra step because you're trying to figure out categories of conceptualization. And if someone fits into, uh, if, if something that, they're saying fits into one category, it shouldn't also fit into another category. So these categories should be very discreet. Um, the categories shouldn't overlap, although a person can have multiple ways of conceptualizing the phenomena inside their selves. And that's what's really coming out in the studies that I'm, in the interviews I'm doing now. So this is us at the conference last December. And then I got my team together. Um, these are people I work with at UCL. And Inesh is here. Um, and then the director of our center is John Mitchell. And part of the reason I wanted to learn phenomenography is because I help, think it will help Emanuela in her PhD studies, which are on topics that have to do with this. So I thought if we could learn this method together, it would help all of us who have multiple benefits. She's on maternity leave right now, though. <laughs> Um, and these methods aren't so dissimilar to what Perry used and all the people who developed the theories following him. Perry did longitudinal interviews. He analyzed them somehow thematically. He doesn't really talk about the method in his book. Um, and that's pretty common for that time. So in, um, in architecture, in urban design, Image of the City by Kevin Lynch, also from, also originating in Boston, MIT Press. He also doesn't explain his way of getting to the answers, but that one seems like phenomenology. 
Kevin Lynch's seems like phenomenology the way he explains it, but he doesn't use that word because maybe it wasn't conceptualized around that word yet. Um, so Perry was using some kind of thematic analysis that he doesn't really describe, but I think it shares common commonalities of grounded theory. So grounded theory, phenomenology, and phenomenography all have common kind of roots. Um, so I want to tell you a bit about the research questions that we're exploring. I can't tell you any of our findings, but I can show you some of our results. Our, we have two main interview questions, and we don't tell, we just tell the students we'd like to talk with them about design. And some of them come in, they want to know more. If they're talking to me face to face, they'll want to know a little bit more, but I can't really reveal that without um, them reflecting on everything beforehand. First question, thinking of your time here at the university, can you think of a time when you'd say you created something entirely new? Can you tell me? Can you think of a time when you'd say you created something entirely new? Can you tell me what it was? It was a big undergraduate module. An undergraduate module, so you designed the module. Then, in this interview, I would follow up with who, what, when, where, why kind of questions to try to understand what your intentions were. So, um, let's see, anyone else has something they think that they created that was entirely new? I guess I would have a question back because I to say it's entirely new, that's really problematic for me. So I could say, um, you know, I've come up with a, a new research method, but it's constructed from other things and other places, and I've and I built upon pre-existing things. So I would con be concerned that it wasn't entirely new. So now there you have said what almost every built environment student says. That mirrors what I said I had learned. So this idea of generating new knowledge and the social construction of reality, that's where I started to realize, wait a minute, maybe we have, and I was thinking different epistemologies in built environment professions than in social science professions, but you're coming from a social science perspective even saying. So anybody else, you said you'd created something entirely new? A poem. A poem. I wrote a poem. I've written many poems. But I would say a poem is an entirely new creation. It's, it builds on something. It builds on language, vocabulary, structures, cultural assumptions, the kind of a, um, resonance, cultural resonances that different sorts of phrasings or combinations or images provoke. But the creation is original. Okay, and let's have just one last one. Okay, a more, a more effective way of conducting education based on people listening to the means of learning we already have available innately and self-evidently and accessing the huge wealth of experience everybody has. Therefore, putting aside the way we're trained from a very yeah. early age and accessing what we had at birth more openly. That's great. Now, I will say, this question seems to be easy for us. We're experts now. I'll, I'll, since you, 
Since you had your hand up right when I said that, will you tell us yours? Well, I, so I created a marking rubric for IT design engineer, chemical engineering. Oh, great! Yeah, so I, I, because I have a team of eight academics, and some of them are chemical engineers actually, and so getting them to mark a design thesis is really, really challenging. Yeah. So I had to create a, a marking rubric so that everybody is almost sort of on the same page. That's great. So. Uh, hopefully, and that's why I put the design rubric in there, even though I'm not talking about it, because I thought for many of us here it could be a helpful tool. Um, so, with the students, really, it's about that tricky part of the question, and most of them bring up the same tricky part of the question that our friend in the orange sweater did. Um, they want to know what I mean by the question. But I'll take whatever their first responses are and follow up on those. And then the, the thing about the questions that I have is these are a question, this question many of them have thought about before, especially architecture students. But the next question they've never seen before in their lives, and I had it before I went into my PhD program. So to follow up on, uh huh? Does it matter if you take out the word entirely? Yeah, it does make a big difference. Um, and so a lot of these words I added to our original protocol. Um, we conducted a series of pilot studies, only one with an architecture student and two with other kinds of engineering non-civil. Um, and then Mike refined the questions. And he had think in there twice, which I never like to see twice in a, the same word twice in a sentence, but actually in this context, you need to add some extra words so they have some time to think. Um, and then the part that I added was when you'd say, and then he had, you created something, and the entirely new, we had to put entirely to emphasize the new part. So we really wanted to get at the newness of this, and we didn't want to call it innovation. We didn't want to tag it, but we wanted it to be new. So really the questions that our friend brought up here are the questions that we wanted them to grapple with. So these interviews are actually not so much often talking about their existing concepts as them building something new during the course of our hour together and then us looking to see if there are some commonalities. And I think that we are definitely going to find that. So we will be able to say that, um, not necessarily that, I, I showed you the one where their, their teachers are informing what they think more directly. Um, my teacher is telling me, and then me telling my students, and then them, you know, somebody at LSBU in our pilot study saying exactly what that, that, that same broken record of, you don't make something new, you just recombine the parts. Um, so, um, we'll get back to this in a minute though. Um, we, then, then Mike wanted me to stick closely to this because I've been doing phenomenological interviews, which are about their experiences. So I don't really got, it, it, it's a conversation about what they've been experiencing around this phenomenon, but he wants something much more structured for this type of study. So he suggests I, that we ask, why did you do that? What did you think you were trying to achieve there? Why do you think you organized your work that way? How did you see yourself in this process? 
I try to stick to his structure as much as I can, but I'm also trying to get some, to some really slippery conceptual terms, and sometimes I have to go off script a little bit to d dig out what they're talking about in those areas. So based on your experiences as a student so far, can you think of an occasion where you generated new knowledge? Now all of us here, we're sure, <laughs> but these kids have never heard the term new knowledge. So the next half of the interview is, and one, I have kind of answered that question early on, and I knew when I said this it was going to open a new, open Narnia, <laughs> the, the door to the wardrobe or whatever, and it did. So actually a lot of times at the end of the interview they're like, wow, you know, I learned so much here because they never that, that was a, a kind of concept, an aha moment. Um, so again, following up on those, then at the end of the interview, or during the interview, we almost always try to um, ask about the role of other people in this whole process. So if they mentioned other students or teacher and what those people's roles were. Um, and then near the end, ask again, on each of these and follow up on anything that's still missing. Okay, so Mike came up with a list of recommendations that are in this report that you see here because we're just reporting the pilot study in the paper that you have. Um, hopefully at the December meeting of SHRI we can actually talk about what we found in our analysis. But ask very direct questions, how, what, why, um, Sometimes in the past, I've not uh, I've not tended to make very clear questions. So there's not a clear clear question mark at the end. I'm just suggesting a general topic or a general way they might want to keep talking about. So I'm trying to become better at that. Um, deal with a fixed order of 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 um, questioning. Um, asking them to identify their intentions asking them for contradictions in things that they say or where there might be similarities or differences between their statements. Um, I tend to ca characterize what other, what the interviewee is saying so that I make sure that I understood it properly, which is something I learned in my qualitative research classes. Uh, most of my work at uh, William & Mary was quantitative, by the way, so in my fellowships I'm really trying to master qualitative kind of on my own, <laughs> and sometimes that's difficult. Um, trying not to lead them, that one's a very difficult one because I always like to be positive and encouraging. Um, this one has become very important. How did you know the results were accurate or useful? So how you validate new knowledge, how you know that something you've generated or that somebody else generated is, is true or valid, but I don't want to use the word true, I only want to follow up on that if they say it. Um, but really focusing on that new aspect. That's why entirely is important so that they realize that new is the key word there. Um, and then in the end asking them to summarize what they're doing. So I'll tell you some of the results that we got. I have two things that I have left in the presentation. One is telling you things that or sharing with you some of the things that they said. I've taken bits out from three different students and then I have a little bit more about um, various 
student development theories just to give you kind of uh, an idea of the range of what's out there. Um, so if at any point you want to stop and talk about one of these, I wasn't sure how much time we'd have to talk about each one of these. This is from our pilot study. Um, and I was really amazed that the answers <coughs> this student gave paralleled how I would have responded in many ways when I was at her level of education. And I found another student who was a fourth year architecture student from Nigeria studying in Virginia who similarly answered in a way that was that sounded like what I as a student would have said. So this student said, near enough every project she's making something new. I think every concept we do in studio is something new that hasn't been done before. I think we've been taught to think outside the box and then just do something that no one's done before. But when she's probed, she says, you know, really, it's a new invention for me. And this is what most people say. And I think that's what you are getting at. Do you mean new to me or new to the world? That's what most students ask first. And then I say, well, I don't know. Let's talk about those. What different ways could you answer that question? What came to mind when I asked that question? We'll just write them down and talk about each one of them. So what does it mean new to you? What does it mean new to the world? So I think every single building I design is new, but it's not new in terms of like it's never been made before. It's new in terms of the way it looks, what it does, but the way I got there is the same. It's the same that has been the same process for thousands of years. So still the research, still the site analysis, etc. So all of that's the same as the way people have been achieving this in the past. But the actual final outcomes, the way the building looks, the way it's used, that's the new invention. And then she also talked about the <coughs> dichotomy that it's being made only on paper. She's one of the few that did that. So actually, there are many concepts that came out that only one or two students out of the 26 mentioned, but they're still very valuable concepts. Um, so, a fourth year civil engineering student at UCL, the last person I interviewed. Um, I don't know about you all, but people talk about data saturation. Every single interview, there is so much new stuff in there. So on number 26, I was thinking, oh, I've got to do some more. <laughs> but you know, at some point, you have to stop or you never get your stuff analyzed. So pray for me. <laughs> um, so this, this guy was really interesting, though. Um, this is a student from uh, Russia, actually. And he's only been learning English for about three years. So he's pretty new to our context here. Um, a time when you'd say you've created something that's entirely new. That I have created something new for the university or for whom? As in for myself? Could you give me more specific instructions? Uh, then he gets, okay, for the planet? For the environment? Then he gets the one that was his real contribution to our collection. I created my new personality. I developed a new personality. It's like when I entered the university, UCL made a new version of myself. I was completely different before my first year here. Uh, then, when this kind of pressure from the coursework, meeting lots of people because I was quite introverted, I don't know the word, I was quite introvert before I joined university, then it all started rolling. I actually enjoy myself now much more than I was. I'm happy about myself more than I was before. So it asks 
asked him again what he'd created. Turns out he also created a report from the National Rail when he was doing his internship after first year. Now, did I say, I said, I'm sorry, it says he's a fourth year civil. He's not, he's a second year civil student. Um, and this is where I'm finding no relationship between the year and their sophistication in thinking about context. Um, that was his proud achievement. I'm very proud of it. Every coursework, every test that I've done, I feel like was part of creating that better version of myself that I just mentioned. I feel like time here wasn't more about studies, but was more about building myself up for the better side, for developing better qualities. That's probably it. And that's just one tiny, tiny piece of an hour and, well, we went an hour and three minutes before I said we had to stop collecting data because he had a, another exam coming up. Uh, the gift cards got more costly in the middle of exams. <laughs> um, can you, so I asked the same student, can you define knowledge for me? Okay, the knowledge. Let me think about how to put it better. Um, this is really interesting. It's a precious matter. It's not a gift, but it's something that's very expensive. It's something that is acquired. It's something that is not initially there, but something that has to be acquired and it has to be achieved. And there should be a lot of work done in this, in between the initiation and the obtaining of this knowledge. There's a lot of work involved in that process. And when you get there, it's very precious. It's, I think, rewarding, because I haven't checked the transcript accuracy, and it is demanded in the real world. So that's a pretty darn sophisticated understanding, especially at second year, of what this might be. Um, can you tell me where it exists? If I want to find knowledge, so this is my dumb question back to him, right? Yeah, yeah. If I want to find knowledge, locate some of where, where some of it is, where will I look? And I did ask this a lot at the in the interviews, like after the first third, I almost always asked this kind of, where, where can I get it? Because um, I had to master skills. There was at least one second year civil engineering student who could not discuss these issues at all and I felt like I was torturing this person because she had no entry into this world. Um, and I really should have cut the interview off, but I did learn some things about how to draw this out of students. So where will I find it? This is one I really need with a lot of the students, not with him, but it depends on the type of knowledge you're looking for. Um, to different pockets that are intertwined within themselves. If you want engineering knowledge, go get an engineering degree. But if you want social knowledge, so there I've got another concept, engineering knowledge versus social knowledge. So with the social, social knowledge, you might need to go outside your comfort zone and look somewhere there. Your actions depend on the knowledge type that you want to obtain and achieve. Um, and I think with him, after the interview, I. T I because at some point he talked about uh, some sources. So after the interview, I told him that that one concept tagged on to Daniel Goleman's uh, uh, emotional intelligence, or some of the things that he t was talking about did that. Um, okay, so this is back to the, to the architecture student at LSVU. Um, this is just an example, because I'm usually trying to get them to talk about the validity of knowledge. Um, so, a lot of students will talk about that 
if I can get, if, if somehow they mention calculations or gravity or something that civil engineers and architects go back to as kind of foundational kind of a fact. So what I'm thinking is in engineering and architecture, we do have some things we are going to say aren't social constructions. They might have been socially constructed, but we're going to accept them as facts because, you know, it's helpful for us all to have some rules about gravity. More or less, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe the way we perceive gravity and understand it is a social construction, but we just need to agree on some ground rules and gravity is going to be one of them. So if they bring up gravity or calculations, then my field day begins. Um, because then I can ask them, how did, where did those calculations come from? Often they'll say somebody made them. Um, and what I understand is that students are a lot more able to deal with uncertainty these days. And that I think that second year students said nothing's certain. Several students said nothing's certain. You can't know, in, or one student, maybe it was one before, uh, nothing's obviously, nothing's objective. Wow, nothing. Um, because I think that they would think gravity or how to how to deal with gravity might be objective. Now very few of them though got into quantum physics and the fact that the whole structure of the way we think about physics has changed, but a few of them did. Um, so all very fun stuff. Um, and I'll wrap up telling you about these because actually the, um, the online translations don't do so well, particularly with, um, they did fine with his voice most of the time, but um, they're, they're, they don't particularly understand British phrases, for instance, the people who are transcribing my stuff from, I don't know, it's got a British flag on their logo, but they ain't in Britain. Um, uh, so there's a typo in here where I underlined this part this morning. Um, but this student was over in Dublin, second year, saying, I'm not sure what I think he's saying here, because there are, there are mistakes in this, but I think he's saying, I don't know if you can do this at second year. I don't know if you can generate new knowledge at second year. But then again, but then again, um, when you make something, that's new knowledge you'd be providing because you're making something that's your own and you'd actually be building it and the people using it. Just by having a new structure, not copying someone else's, that's doing. If it's a pavilion, having a new pavilion, that's just a structure that hasn't been done before, something possibly creative. Yes, creative, so new knowledge. Yes, it can be creative creativity because at the end of the day, it will hopefully inspire, inspire others to pursue the same thing. Then maybe when I'm pushing on it and dumbing it down, asking him where you can find this knowledge, then it gets a little more specific. So there's this bit of interview that's just back and forth. No, take your time. Can you think of anything else? Um, but you're talking about a pavilion and knowledge and creativity. Um, okay, so then he says if it's published, that helps make it new knowledge. So if it makes it into a magazine, but he's also saying if people, let's say students are walking by every day, they see it every day, they're aware of it, and they are aware that it exists, then them being aware of these projects, they can implement that knowledge into their own designs. So for him, a pavilion can be knowledge. Knowledge can be embedded in the pavilion. 
And I think he's one of the few students who had that concept so outright. And this has to be very true. Look at this in Jaipur. These are, this is a, a built structure. Yeah, they're sundials, but there's, there's a lot of knowledge in, embedded in, these, in this structure in India. Um, there's a lot of knowledge in the pyramids. So that's a concept that only one student voiced, but still it's a very powerful way of looking at this idea of knowledge. So um, just quickly, I want to make you aware of a few other student development theories. We did talk, and I'm sorry that the transition from the Mac has bumped some of the text off. This one is, but everything you need to know is right here, Sanford. Um, he has balance, he's talking about balance of challenge and support. And if you've read Flow by Mahali Chismahali, then you have an idea of the same um, family of thought, where we want our students, we want to give the, our students the right balance of challenge and support, where we're not just giving them the answers, but they're finding them. Um, and if we're successful, the students learn how to get into the flow channel. If we dumb it down too much, they get bored. If we give them too much challenge, they experience panic and anxiety. And yet we have 30 of them maybe, more in our classrooms at a time, and each one of them has a different threshold for this. Um, another important theory I think involves is student involvement by Aston, and um, I just pulled some images from online, but basically, and you can look at this in two different ways on the slides, but um, basically what Aston posited in 1999 was that um, the more students are involved, the more they're going to learn. Student affairs professionals love this, but it's not just how many hours they spend being involved. It's also the quality of that experience. And if it's more structured, if it's more meaningful, they'll get more out of the time and energy they put into that learning. Um, and so that's another way of looking at it there. Um, Tinto's theory of persistence you probably are all aware of. In the U.S. we're really looking a lot at um, bringing the students from where they come in to actually graduating. And so Tinto's saying this, this has two main streams. One has to do with academics, one has to do with individual attributes and how good the academic and social experience are um, and how much fit an individual feels with these. So, sense of belonging starts to come out of this as well. But in the U.S., you know, we're much, we're very concerned about does this college fit my, what I want to be. The college tour is very important. And yet in, in Ireland, they just submit a list, they, and they hear three weeks before school starts, if they're lucky, which institution they're going to and which program. It's not so much about the flavor of the campus they're going to attend. Um, typology theories, I talked about Kolb's theory. Um, you probably know the Myers-Briggs theory. Um, we use at UCL Clifton Strengths Finder, which is a lot like the Myers-Briggs. And um, another theory that I find very helpful is the Strange and Banning. Now, Strange and Banning do look a lot uh, at um, the tour, the college tour, and um, how people align their perceived selves with the perceived learning environment, and if they're going to, if they fit, if they stay, um, has to do with 
how well that reinforces their own personal values and you know so the college tour is actually important in getting people in who will fit well um, a very important set of, of um, theories has to do with um, identity and this has taken a lot of different um, turns and I only have a few slides left but um, I do want to say, okay, so um, I'm working on a special focus issue for IEEE transactions in education, and um, it's focused on epistemological development in engineering education and identity development. So this is an important theory, but all of the people who have developed theories out of, about identity have basically the same set of um, steps that you go through phases you go through, whether it's racial identity or gender identity or sexual orientation identity or um, even professional identity. Mostly at first you ignore the issue because you're not aware of it. So um, usually you feel some kind of conflict, which is that pressure to change, to recognize that there's something different, maybe that you're a different identity or a different sexual orientation than people around you. Usually that's followed by some denial, attempting to stay in the mainstream. If you move to the next stage, you acknowledge, well, there definitely is something different going on here. Um, then there's a period of pride and celebration where typically you embrace the new you so much that you want to learn all about it and you kind of separate from what you were or the mainstream. And then you start to integrate it into your personality and hopefully you move to a point um, where you are aiding the cause and helping others. Uh, and so I hope now we've reached our the learning objectives I set out, which is to learn something about some of these theories, be able to discuss them and critically analyze them, and understand something of the research methods that I use and some of what we're starting to find about architecture and engineering students.